this morning. Let's stand and we're going to worship together this morning. Let's stand and sing together. Pastor Steve, I'm going to have you stay up here with us. We've got a special thing going on today. Uh, If you'd all have a seat. Um, And we're going to... We're going to have the kids come on in here and, and do their thing this morning. Oh, I'm getting March just saying just one minute. Organizing a bunch of kids to do something is sometimes a little bit of a juggling act. Here we go. Here we go. Pastor Steve, we'll have you stay up here. down for me to come up after all those cute little kids but uh, this is pastor appreciation month and all the kids wanted to say and do a little bit for you Marsha of course is always the lead coordinating everything so we want to thank her but I just wanted to give you a little present from the church some stuff for you and your family just tell you we love you appreciate you Thank, thank you all so much. I'm a, I'm a blessed man, and, and uh, my wife and I both are, so she's a blessed woman, actually. But anyway, thank you all so much. We love you guys, and, and uh, thank you very much. And it's a blessing to be here. All right? Thank you so much. Let's stand and worship together this morning. I'm going to ask you to remain standing this morning. I was told because of how we began the service this morning with uh, pastor recognition that we have an abbreviated song set, so I want to ask you to do right now is in your bulletin there should be a copy of the church covenant and uh, I, you can take that out and we may have the words on the screen I'm not sure so I apologize to you that may if you did not able to see the words but the church covenant is uh, what that covenant means it's really an agreement and we're reminded uh, because of what Christ has done for us just like we just sang about that there's a new covenant that God uh, 
fulfilled for us through Jesus that was prophesied in the Old Testament, this new covenant ratified by the blood of Jesus, where we uh, are in a relationship with God. And because of that relationship with God that we have, He's our Father, we also have brothers and sisters. And because God led us to this local church, we have a relationship with one another, a special relationship as a local church, where we have an agreement with one another, a covenant, where we become members of the local church and we agree together that we're going to live out the Christian life together as this community here at First Baptist Church. So this covenant is a written expression, really, of what the Bible uh, speaks of in, in, in terms of expectations for believers living, living their lives together. So we're going to read this. What I like to do this when we have the Lord's Supper to remind us of, of, uh, of who we are and of what uh, we've committed to do as members of this church. And if you're visitors, you don't have to read this if that violates your conscience or anything. But uh, I'll ask especially of your members to uh, read this with me. So just read along with me. Having been led, as we believe, by the Spirit of God to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, and on the profession of our faith, having been baptized by immersion in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we do now in the presence of God in this assembly most solemnly and joyfully enter into covenant with one another as one body in Christ. We engage, therefore, by the aid of the Holy Spirit to walk together in Christian love, to strive for the advancement of this church in knowledge, holiness, and comfort, to promote its prosperity and spirituality, to sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines, to contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, and the relief of the poor, and to the spreading of the gospel through all nations. We also engage to maintain family and private devotions, to religiously educate our children, to seek the salvation of our kindred and acquaintances, to walk circumspectly in the world, to be just in our dealings, faithful in our engagements, and exemplary in our conduct, and to be zealous in our efforts to advance the kingdom of our Savior. We further engage to watch over one another in brotherly love, to remember one another in prayer, to aid one another in sickness and distress, to cultivate Christian sympathy and feeling and Christian courtesy and speech, to be slow to take offense, but always ready for reconciliation and mindful of the rules of our Savior to secure it without delay. We moreover engage that when we remove from this place, we will as soon as possible unite with some other church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. What we're going to do now is being reminded as we take part in the Lord's Supper later in the service this morning, not at this moment, but later in the service, we're, we're told in, in uh, the 1 Corinthians 11 not to participate in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner but to examine ourselves, and we're to examine ourselves to see whether or not we're in the faith anyway. And so in light of that warning from Scripture, you know, we, we invite anybody to take part in the Lord's Supper that's a baptized believer. You don't have to be a member of this church to take part in the Lord's Supper, but you do need to be somebody that's, that's a believer in Jesus and who's followed the Lord in believers' baptism and is not under the discipline of the church or any other church. So uh, in light of that warning from Scripture about examining ourselves and not taking in part in an unworthy manner, uh, this would be a good time for us to go to the Lord in prayer together. And so as we do sometimes on Sunday mornings, whatever position that will remind you most of being in the presence of God uh, at this moment, then you can get in that position, okay? And for some that may be kneeling up here with me or it may be sitting where you're at. So you can be seated or you can come here to the front and we can go in prayer and pray about a host of things this morning. Let's just take a few moments to go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we come... This morning, again, we thank you and we praise you that you're our God, that you love us, Lord, that you have chosen us and called us and made us your own through faith and repentance in Jesus. Just thank you for your grace this morning. Father, we come and we thank you that as we take a moment to examine our own hearts, and Lord, we know we, we fall short each and every day. And as we think this morning about our own commitments to one another and our commitments to you, Lord, we know that we have, we have fallen short. And we confess it to you and ask you for your forgiveness. And 
we thank you this morning, Lord, that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We thank you for being this God, this compassionate and forgiving God. Father, we ask, God, that you would be with the, the heavy of heart this morning and be with those that are sick in our church family, be with those that may be traveling. Father, we pray for our community right now and we pray for those that are unsaved all around us. Our desire is that everyone in, everyone in this region, Lord, would hear the gospel and would be saved. And so we pray that. We pray that for people all around the world, Lord. We ask now that you would use our tithes and offerings to use it to further your kingdom. We ask these things in Jesus' name. So this morning, we're not having a children's church this morning because we're having the Lord's Supper later, but I do want to ask our ushers to come and take up this morning's offering, if you would. Please take your Bible this morning and turn with you to the Gospel of Matthew, first book of the New Testament, Gospel of Matthew, and turn to chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there should be one close to you underneath your chair you're sitting in or, or one of the chairs close to you, Matthew chapter 19. Please stand with me as we honor God and reading His Word together this morning, Matthew chapter 19, and I'll begin reading at verse 13. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Verse 18, he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you should not murder, you should not commit adultery, you should not steal, you should not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 20, the young man said to him, all these I've kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. 
When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Verse 23. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then could be saved? Verse 26. But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Let's pray again. Our Father, as we come now and look at your word, we, we ask that you would help us understand it. We ask that we would not just understand it with our heads, but, but it would affect our hearts. Do what only you can do. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You can be seated. As a pastor, uh, you know, I get asked a lot of questions. And sometimes I feel like people think I've got the Bible memorized or, or uh, just got a systematic theology textbook in the back of my head. And certainly, uh, if, you, if you have a doctor, then you'd expect that physician to be able to spit out answers pretty quick. And so as a pastor, I need to be on my toes and be ready with those answers and study to show myself approved. But one of the most important questions I could ever be asked is, Preacher, how can I be saved? I don't get asked that very often. Um, I get asked other questions, but I don't get asked that very often. Sometimes I find myself feeling led to share the gospel with other people, and I'll ask them, I had a couple of opportunities this week, and I'll say to somebody, are you sure if you died you'd go to heaven? I don't know that we're supposed to be waiting around for people to ask us anyway what I need to do to be saved or how, to, how can I go to heaven. But you know when you ask somebody, are you sure if you died you go to heaven, that really gets right at the heart of the matter pretty quick. A lot of times I'll start off, if I feel led to share with somebody I don't know well, and I'll say, hey, do you go to church anywhere? That's a little bit less threatening. And that's okay, that's a good question to ask. But if I'm really wanting to press into the gospel, I can't stop short there. If I really want to press in, I, I go ahead and ask sometimes if I'm bold enough by God's grace and I'll say, are you sure if you died you'd go to heaven? And when you ask that, well, you're going to get some looks sometimes. Well, I wasn't quite expecting that. I asked somebody that recently and they kind of gave me that surprised kind of look and, and repeated what I said. They said, so if I died, would I go to heaven? <laughs> I said, yeah. And, of course, they gave me their answer. And, um, and I went on to try to share the gospel in the most loving way I knew how at the moment. It's not proclaiming the gospel to ask that question, though. Uh, it's to answer it, you see. And to ask somebody to go to church or ask somebody if they died to go to heaven, you need to be able to answer that even if they don't ask you for the answer. The most important question we could ever ask somebody, the really the most important we could ever be asked, has been asked by others in church history. It's been asked by people in the Bible. Remember the Philippian jailer? When the Lord sent a, you know, the earthquake, divinely appointed by the Lord and opened up the jails of the cell that Paul and Silas were in, they'd been singing all night long. The jailer came and said, what must I do to be saved? And on the day of Pentecost, when the disciples had been in the upper room, they started speaking in tongues and Peter preached the gospel. They said to the, Peter and the apostles, the people of Jerusalem cried out, 
Brothers, what shall we do? It's the most important question you could ever ask. And here in this passage of Scripture, here's this fellow, this young man, young, rich, rich, young, rich, young ruler, asking, why do you ask me? Or excuse me, it's in verse 16. Teacher, what good, do, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? That's the most important question you could ever ask. And what I want you to notice when we look at this passage of Scripture, beginning in verse 13 on down through the end of the chapter, is the whole object of this passage of Scripture is about that most important question. It's about salvation. It's about heaven. It's about eternal life. It's about the kingdom of God. Well, if you look at your Bible, just look at it. You look in verse 14 and he mentions the kingdom of heaven. You see that? When he's talking about the children, it belongs to, belongs to them the kingdom of heaven. And if you look at verse 16, at the last few words of that, last two words of verse 16, what do you see? Eternal life. If you look at verse 17, he says, there's only one who, does, who is good if you would enter life. There's another reference to salvation, to eternity. If you look in verse 21, in the middle of it, he talks about treasure in heaven. And if you look in verse 23 at the very last words, three words of that, you'll see the words kingdom of heaven. And if you look in verse 24, the last three words of that verse, what do you see? Kingdom of God. They're synonymous terms. And then if you look at the last word of verse 25, what's the last word of verse 25? You're looking at your Bible? Saved. If you look in your Bible in verse 28, in the middle of it, he talks about how things will be in the new world. He's talking about eternity. And if you look at the last few words of verse 29, you're looking at your Bible in verse 29, what's it say? They will inherit eternal life. So I ask again, what's the object, what's the subject of this passage of Scripture? It's about eternal life. It's about the most important question. It's about salvation. It's about eternity. And who better to go to answer this question than the one that came to seek and to save this for those which are lost? Than the Lord Jesus himself. What does Jesus have to say about salvation and how to obtain it? There's a lot of answers out in the world. A lot of people give you works-based answers what you're going to get all the time. But what does Jesus have to say about salvation? Well, the first thing we notice is salvation is for the humble, helpless sinner. Salvation is for the humble, helpless sinner. I got a kick out of the kids walking up this morning to show appreciation to their pastor, bringing up these things with them this morning. I, I love the little kids in our church, and, and uh, there'll be sometimes I'm here at my office at church, and I'll have my door open, and I'll hear some parents here running in to talk to Marsha about something or picking up something. I hear kids, and sometimes the kids will stop by my office and poke their head in and look at me. And they'll look around my office, and maybe sometimes they'll talk to me. And they, the parent will come around and say, now don't bother the pastor. And uh, I'm like, they, don't, they, ain't, they ain't bothering me. I, I love it. I love that attention. I'm not saying... I'm going to open up my office for babysitting anytime soon. But I like it. It's kind of like the sentimentality, you know, that sometimes people give when they see kids out with their parents. You know, we were out Big John's Friday night and sitting in there at the booth with our youngest two. And there were some older ladies sitting behind us. And Titus was turning around looking at them. And they were looking at him. And he turned around and said to his mom, he said, Mom, the grandmas are looking at me. <laughs> So you know how it is, you know, especially, I guess, if they're not your own, you know, you kind of, you like that attention, you like the little children being around. And Jesus says here when they bring children to him in the verses 13 through 15, how does he respond to that? They're like, leave, leave pastor alone, leave, leave, leave Jesus alone. He ain't got time for kids. And what's Jesus say? Well, what's your Bible say? Let the children come to me. Look at your Bible, verse 14. Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Now, why is that? Is it just this same sentimentality that we have when we see little kids out and so forth? Oh, yeah, they're not bothering me. Yeah, they're precious little. Ooh, let me pinch their cheeks. Is that, is that what he's talking about? Well, 
There's a reason he says this, and it's to teach a lesson. There's a contrast being set up, and it's the same kind of thing he says to the disciples when they ask about being great in the kingdom of God back in Matthew chapter 18. So look, take one chapter back, go to Matthew chapter 18, and look at your Bible in verse 4. And he's already told them here that if you're going to be great in the kingdom of heaven, you've got to turn and humble and be like a little child. You can't go to heaven unless you're like a child. He didn't say be a child, but be like a child. Turn and be like a child. Why does he say that? Look at verse 4 in your Bible. Are you listening? Are you looking? Listen to what it says, verse 4, chapter 18. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So why is it that Jesus says back in chapter 19, now our text, don't hinder the children from coming to me for such is the kingdom of heaven. Why does he say that? What is it about children that he delights in, that he wants his disciples, his would-be followers to emulate. Well, that word right there in chapter 18, verse 4 is humility. Whoever humbles himself like this child. So back to the first point of how Jesus answers the question, what is salvation and how do we obtain salvation? Salvation begins with this. Number one, salvation is for the humble, helpless sinner. Now, here comes this young man. This rich, rich young ruler, do you see him walking up to Jesus? The disciples have just tried to run the kids off. Jesus says, don't run the kids off. Let them come to me. The kingdom of heaven is like these children. Now here comes this young man. Is this young man going to be like these children? Or is it going to be like a proud man? Well, as the story unfolds, he comes up and he asks the question right there. Right there at the end of verse 16, if you look at your Bible. Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? He doesn't just say, what, what, how do I be saved or how can I be saved, how can I go to heaven, but what good deed must I do to have eternal life? It's the default reasoning of human beings that there's something we've got to do to get to heaven. This man, by asking the question and by asking the question that way, this man seems to think that salvation is within his own grasp. What good deed must I do to have salvation, really to earn salvation? Salvation is for the humble, helpless sinner. We're all helpless sinners, right? And ain't none of us humble. We have to be humbled is what we find out in this passage of Scripture. And this man has not been humbled by the fact that he can't earn his salvation. He still thinks it could be within his grasp. Salvation is for the humble, helpless sinner because there's only one who is holy. Look at your Bible in verse 17. And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus says, why are you asking me about what is good? When you look this up in Mark and, and Luke, he actually had said to them, uh, he says, why do you call me good? Then he says, there's only one who is good. There's only one who is good. Do you realize, rich young ruler, who you're talking to? That the one who is good is the one standing in front of you. That there's only one who is holy. Do you realize, rich young ruler, that you're not good? There's only one who is holy. There's only one who is good and you are not good. Salvation is for the humble Helpless sinner, the one who realizes he can't save himself and in desperation crawls out to God to make a way. Well, Jesus goes through some of the commandments. He says, Jesus says to him, interesting, look at, what could he, look at how he answers. He says, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. Well, isn't that interesting? Does Jesus really mean that if that man wants to go to heaven, that if he keeps all the commandments, that he'll be saved? Well, certainly if somebody is innocent and has never broken a commandment, they'll go to heaven. The thing is, they ain't no such person. There's nobody that's good. There's nobody that's not broke a commandment. He assumes he's pretty good on the outside anyway. So Jesus goes through him and Jesus said, you shall not... He's, look, at how he, look at how he responds. He, rich young Uther says, okay, keep the commandments. Rich young Uther says, which ones? <laughs> as, as if it's... There's some that are optional. There's some that I don't have to keep. 
Which one's that? Which one's he talking about? Well, Jesus goes right along with him, and Jesus says, Jesus doesn't say all of them. Jesus says, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And how does a young man respond in verse 20? He says, I've done all of those. Ever since I was a young guy, ever since my youth, I've kept all those commandments, not broken one of them. And interestingly, Jesus doesn't go back as he does in the Sermon on the Mount and says, you know, you, you say you've never committed adultery, but if you look, on a, you look on a woman to lust, you've committed adultery in heart. Jesus doesn't go that route with him. Jesus knows where this man's treasure really is with his possessions. And so Jesus says, there's one, well, his young man says, what do I lack? And so Jesus says to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess. Well, before we get to that, one of the things we, we're looking at again here is this. Is this man assumes that he's right with God. He's kept the commandments. And Jesus has clearly said, there's only one who is good and you're not it. That's what he's trying to help him understand. We are all helpless sinners, but there's, we're not by nature humble. If you notice back in chapter 18, verse 3, if you look back at that, we looked at verse 4 a while ago, but verse 3 said this, Truly I say to you, unless you turn, you see that word, hear that word? Turn, that means repent, that means take a 180, turn and become like children. You'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not that you'll just not be great in the kingdom of heaven. You will not enter the kingdom of heaven if you don't turn and become like a child. And what is, what is it about this child? Verse 4, chapter 18, humble like a child. You see, by nature, we're not humble like a, like a, like a child that's dependent upon on its parents. Not that the child is sinless either. We are not by nature humble, and neither was this man. He was prideful. His pride blinded him from his need of Christ. Psalm chapter 14 tells us this. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Well, this flies in the face of all world religions who would teach that their way to their gods or to the God or whatever God of their imagination they may serve would say that the way to be right with that being or beings is to be good enough. And Jesus says, none are good, no, not one. Salvation is for the humble, helpless sinner, the one who realizes he can't be good enough and that man is not in that place. So if we're going to share the gospel with somebody, if you're here this morning and that question is in your own heart about your own life and you're wondering, am I saved? Will I go to heaven when I die? The first thing you need to be confronted with is the fact that you're a sinner and you're no good. <laughs> well, preacher, I didn't come to church to be told I'm no good. Well, you're in the right place. Because you're hearing what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. That's why you're in the right place. Outside of God, we are no good in His sight. And we all deserve to be punished for our sin. Now folks, this is straightforward, simple. This is the gospel. You believe this? If we're going to share the truth, we're going to answer the question to somebody who may ask it, how can I be saved? Then we have to confront them with their sin. Salvation is from the humble, helpless sinners. Secondly, salvation requires an undivided heart for Jesus. It requires an undivided heart for Jesus. God's not impressed by our morality. Remember in verse 17, the young Jesus said to him, what? Keep the commandments. Verse 20, what did the young man say after Jesus went through some of the commandments? I've kept all the commandments. And look at verse 21. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor. If you would be perfect. Now the gospel of Mark says in Mark chapter 10 verse 21 that Jesus looked at him and he loved him. And sometimes maybe we don't love people enough to really tell them the truth about their depravity, about their condition, and about the need for an undivided heart. But Jesus loved him, so Jesus doesn't just go through the... Uh, 
easy believism type things that we often do in our decision-oriented theology. Make this decision and you're in and don't worry about nothing else. Jesus is prying at his heart. Because salvation requires an undivided heart. You can't have foot, one, one foot in the world and one foot to follow Jesus. That'd be pretty hard to do. Because I'm going to tell you, Jesus is going the opposite direction of the world. God's not impressed by morality. So the young man says, look, I've done all these things from my youth. And Jesus says, one thing you still lack. He says, what do I lack? He says, if you want to be perfect, go and sell all you possess. What's Jesus driving at? Is he driving at you can't have anything if you want to go to heaven? No, he's not saying that. He's saying, if you want to go to heaven, you've got to have all of me, though. You've got to want all of me. God wants our heart to treasure him. He says in verse 21, if you'd be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So he needs to look at Christ. He needs to be confronted with his sin and he needs to desire Christ and the treasure that Christ is and the treasure that Christ gives more than the treasure that he possesses here on earth. God wants our hearts to treasure him. He's not impressed by outward morality. Salvation is not being a good person. That's what he's telling him. Salvation is not being an American. Salvation is not being a good moral American that goes to church on Sunday. I mean, it's good to be a good moral American that goes to church on Sunday, right? But that's not salvation. That's just outward conformity. Jesus wants our affection. He wants our heart. He wants an undivided heart. He wants us to love him more than anything. He don't care about our religion. He wants a relationship with us. He wants to be Lord. And so he loves this young man and that's what he's telling him. You can't let your possessions and your money stand between me and you. You must be born again. As D.A. Carson says, his money was competing with God and Jesus knew that. You heard about Kanye West? Some of you may not know who he is. I don't know much about him other than he's this real popular pop singer that's been in the news like crazy the past few years and gets himself in trouble for saying all kinds of things. And supposedly, he's been converted. And a little documentary film was released called Jesus is King that he helped fund. And an album was released this week uh, with uh, what I'm hearing is very gospel-centered lyrics called Jesus is King is what the album's called. With The lyrics are supposed to be very gospel-centered. And this is Kanye West. Yeah, really, the Kim Kardashian's, is that what her name is? Dashian, Dashian, I don't know nothing about them. But listen. Why is it about Kanye West that on social media and stuff, you start reading, you know, Facebook posts and all this, and people start saying, well, Kanye West, he's... He produced this album. Look at the lyrics. He, he sounds like the real deal. It sounds like this is the real thing. Why is it that we even question that? Why is it that since Kanye West says he's a Christian, why don't we say, yes, he's a Christian? Because we should understand, we, the reason we question, the reason we sit back, the reason we ask and, and we're not quick, so quick to put our stamp and say, yes, he prayed a prayer, and yes, he's in heaven, is because we understand that God wants our heart. God wants an undivided heart. Is it true of Kanye West? He has an undivided heart. We pray, yes. We, we pray and hope, yes. What I'm trying to help us understand is, is, is that the, our inclination to question Kanye West's conversion reminds us that I think down deep within, we know that an easy believism is not right. That we know that for someone to be saved, he must be Savior and Lord. We know that it's not to merely mouth the right words about Jesus for a little while, but it's to actually become a follower of Jesus. And this is what we see in the text. We see that Jesus doesn't want just to give this man fire insurance from hell. 
He wants this man's heart. He wants this man's soul. This man must be changed by the gospel. When we understand conversion that way and salvation that way, it informs our evangelism and how we do church and how we share the gospel and how we talk to somebody about Christ and how we disciple them. When we understand that somebody needs an undivided heart for Jesus, the thing is, none of us have an undivided heart for Jesus by nature. There's nobody born on the face of this earth that has a heart for Jesus. That's not the way we are. We're the opposite. So the third lesson we learn about salvation from the lips of Jesus here in the Gospel of Matthew is salvation is entirely the work of God's grace. Salvation is entirely the work of God's grace. So what does he say? You're familiar probably with some of these verses, verse 23 and 24. Jesus says to the disciples, you know, it's... It's with difficulty a rich person's going to go to heaven, go to the kingdom of heaven, right? You see that in verse 23? And then in verse 24, he says, Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, what have you heard in your lives, some of you have been in church a long time, about the explanation for the eye of a needle, the camel going through the eye of a needle? One popular explanation has been to explain that the eye of the needle wasn't really a needle trying to put a camel through it. Well, that's impossible, clearly. So certainly Jesus can't be saying it's impossible for rich people to be saved. So a popular explanation has been to say that this eye of a needle was actually a small gate in Jerusalem called the eye of a needle that for some reason, instead of going through the big gate over here your camel could go through, that you'd go through this little bitty tiny one instead. I don't know why somebody would do that. You'd take off his pack and take off his stuff and then the camel would have to get down on his knees and go through this little hole called the eye of a needle, the needle gate, which there's really no history. There's there's nothing to say that such thing ever existed. And there's other explanations too that this eye of a needle was something about a cable and a rope going through a needle and stuff like that. That that it's it's hard but not, not impossible, but that's not what it means. Why is it that people try to come up with those kind of explanations? Because we don't want to think that Jesus could possibly be saying that it is literally, completely impossible for a rich man to be saved. Right? We don't want to think that. Because then we're thinking, well, how rich is too rich to be saved? I mean, we're Americans. We're richer than anybody else in the world, no matter who we are here this morning. So we can't be saved. So what, what's going on? You know what the prosperity gospel is? The prosperity gospel says that you do God's will, then a sign of prosperity is that you'll be rich, health, wealth, so forth. You just have enough faith, God will bless you. A sign of God's blessing would be riches. And that's what a lot of these Preachers that have jets and so forth and a couple million dollar homes will try to justify that lifestyle is to say that this is a sign of God's blessing, a sign of God's favor. That same type of theology was prominent in Jesus' day. And so when the disciples heard Jesus saying, it's impossible for rich people to be saved. With man, it's impossible. That's key, isn't it? What they were hearing was, If it's impossible for somebody that's blessed, that's clearly blessed of God, this is their false theology. This man over here is rich. He's clearly blessed by God. A sign of that is his riches. And if he can't be saved and we're poor, we don't have the sign of God's blessing, then who can be saved? You see that in the next verse. That's what they say, right? Who can be saved then? Here's the point. With man. You see the word with man? Jesus looked at him and said, With man, this is impossible with God. With man, it's not only impossible for the rich, supposedly blessed by God, to to be saved, but with man, with man, it's impossible for anybody to be saved. And the disciples see that too. It's impossible for anybody to be saved in and of themselves with man. 
but with God. Amen? All things are possible. You ain't going to get a camel through a needle. It ain't going to happen. With man, it's impossible. With God, camel, whoosh, right through the needle. Right? Praise God for his grace. What that means is you look at people that you love, people that are lost, people that are going down a path, and you think, man, they're never going to be saved. With God, all things are possible. Maybe somebody thought that about you. Maybe you were written off. Maybe you thought there's no hope for you, and God saved you and changed you, right? Really, that's true about all of us. We've been converted. With God, all things are possible. Salvation is entirely the work of God's grace. If you're going to be saved, it requires an undivided heart. We don't have a divide, we don't have an undivided heart. Therefore, with God, God must do something in this heart. And God can humble the heart of any man. Amen. But with God, all things are possible. We love this song we sing. Lord, now indeed I find Thy power and Thine alone Can change the leper's spots And melt the heart of stone <laughs> Amen? Jesus paid it all. Jesus is the one that does that. Salvation is entirely the work of God's grace. And when we talk to somebody about the gospel, isn't that what we have to help them understand? Just like this young man, isn't this really what it comes down to, whether we're in Bosnia or Argentina or right here in Mount Carmel? When we, when we talk with people and we say, are you sure if you died to go to heaven? And they say what? Yeah, I think so. You think so? Or you know so? Well, why do you think so? Well, I go to church, I do this, I, I believe in Jesus and this and this. And there's a combination of faith plus works equals salvation. Now, I don't like math, never have. But brother, put God in the equation. All things are possible with God. With man, it's impossible. Put, put man in the equation, faith plus works equals salvation, equals justification, no. But grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, which is what we're going to celebrate on October 30th, the Protestant Reformation, right? It's what the Bible teaches. Faith alone, and Christ alone, God's grace alone, Equals justification plus works. It changes you. It justifies you. Makes you right with God. So in our conversations with people, what are we trying to do simply? We're trying to help them understand it's only by the grace of God you can be saved. You cannot save yourself. We don't have to get lengthy, difficult, expl theological explanations about mis mysteries. But we have to help them understand for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Salvation is entirely a work of God's grace. That's a beautiful thing when you understand. Number four and finally, salvation results in a radical following now and radical reward later. Radical obedience, radical following, radical discipleship. Salvation results in radical following now and radical reward later. This is what Jesus had said to the young man. Sell all your possessions. The point is, you don't earn your way to heaven by selling all you got. Because that's probably what some of us are wrestling with this morning. I need to sell all my possessions. Point is, you've got to have an undivided heart for Christ. Your possessions can't stand between you and Christ. Salvation results in a radical following now and a radical reward later. So the disciples say, what do they say in verse 27? Peter said in reply, see, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? They have radically followed Jesus now. They've done what Jesus said. This young man walks away sorrowful, but they have left everything and followed Jesus. What will we have? <laughs> he says, I say to you in the new world, the Son of Man will sit on this glorious throne. He talks about the disciples being the judges over Israel, probably telling Israel, disobedient Israel, that they have rejected the Messiah. That could be what that means. But verse 29 says, If you've left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake, we'll receive a hundredfold. There's radical following now. 
But there's treasure in heaven. There's radical reward later. You left sisters now? Hundredfold later. Luke Fowler? Hundred sisters later, Luke. Yes! Is that what you're thinking? Clara? Kite? Hundred brothers later. Is that what Jesus is talking about? In heaven you're going to get a hundred sisters? You begin to question heaven a little bit, maybe. Hundred fathers? You're going to have a hundred fathers? No, that's not what he means. The point is, is that something glorious is coming. Something radical blessing is coming upon those who follow Christ. You're going to have Christ. You're going to be with God. It will be worth it after all to follow Jesus. That's what he's saying. So one point of application I'll share with you. Brothers and sisters, fight to keep the big picture in view. Your following Jesus now is going to cost you. It's going to be costly to follow Christ. It's going to be costly to be a mom and dad the way God wants you to. To discipline your kids the way God's called you to. It's going to be costly to be a single adult and, and wait the way God wants you to for the one God's calling you. It's going to be costly to strive to have a healthy marriage and be what God wants you to be in your marriage. It's going to be costly and it's going to be hard when you're at work to maintain a good testimony and be a person of integrity when others are not. Or to be in classes at college or in school and not cheat like others do or, or not join the parties that others go to. Or share your faith and get made fun of or get persecuted for. It's a radical following now. But keep the big picture in view. Maybe you don't see progress, you don't see fruit, you don't see what you'd like to see as a parent or you'd like to see as a student or whatever it is, but our labor in the Lord, 1 Corinthians 15, 8, 58 says, is not in vain. It is not in vain. It'll be radically rewarded later. So keep this glorious paradox in view. Verse 30 says this, But many who are first will be last, and the last first. It is a glorious paradox. You may seem to be last right now because of what following Jesus is costing you, but it's going to be rewarded later. You will be first. Romans 8.18 For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time aren't worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. Amen. Well, salvation. Salvation means we are in danger, right? What does it mean to be saved? Well, it means you need to be saved from something. It means you're in danger. And we think of the old hymn. It says, souls in danger, look above. Jesus completely saves. That's the good news. Jesus completely saves. Look above, trust all in him. Turn from your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning, let me be so plain as to say, if you're here this morning and and I'm asking you right now, do you believe if you died right this moment, you would go to heaven? What is your answer? And what is your answer based on? If your answer is based on, yes, because I'm a good person. You've been confronted with scripture this morning to say, no, you're not a good person. You're a sinner just like the rest of us that must humble themselves and like a child trust only in what Jesus did on the cross. It's by faith alone that you're made right with God. Look to Christ and trust in Him. And if you're here this morning and that's you and you begin to understand that, man, when we're singing this song, we'd love for you to come and I'll talk with you about that and I'll talk with you more later after the service is over. You can get my attention before you leave today and we can talk or call me or email me or talk to another Christian here but what you need to do if God's working in your heart that way, the Bible says call upon the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. Cry out, oh God, I'm a sinner. Forgive me of my sins and save me. If that's the desire of your heart. And we're reminded this morning in Scripture for those of us that are Christians that salvation is only possible with God. Let this be encouragement for you as you leave this place to be on mission everywhere and every day across the street right here in Mount Carmel. The salvation is possible only with God, but it is possible. So that coworker or that 
kid at home or whoever it is that you're around with on a day-to-day -day basis or that person that you go and see at the gas station every day or, or whenever you go to the gas station. Listen, it is possible with God for that person to be saved. So keep sharing the gospel and keep praying for them. Keep living out the gospel with the intent to share it. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word and I thank you, Lord, that the answer to the most important question is not an ambiguous one. It's very clear. That it is Jesus who saves and him alone by his grace through faith in him. Father, I pray that you would grant that faith and that repentance. I pray that you would call sinners to yourself and do that for your name's sake and for your glory. I pray that for us who are believers that as we leave this place that we would be ready to share this powerful gospel the means through which you can take that, ammo, that camel right through the eye of a needle, Lord. You can save anybody, whether they're rich or poor. We thank you for the gospel, and it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're going to stand right now and sing this hymn together. And if you'd like to come and pray about something, we can talk about your relationship with the Lord or whatever it might be. Then you stand together. What is the gospel? It all begins with God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, to rule over the garden. God told them they could eat from any tree that they wanted to in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything was perfect in the garden. They had a perfect relationship with the land, a perfect relationship with each other, a perfect relationship with God until they chose to rebel against God and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it brought about separation between them and God. Man has always tried to bridge the separation on his own terms and in his own strength. Whether it's building a ladder of morality and trying to be good enough for God, or even in the Old Testament example, when men built a tower into the heavens trying to reach God on their own. A more contemporary example comes from 1961, when the Russians were first successful in sending a man into outer space. Upon returning, the Russian cosmonaut remarked, We have been to space, and we didn't find God or heaven there. A popular professor and author, C.S. Lewis, responded to the Russian cosmonaut. He said that looking for God in outer space is kind of like Hamlet, one of the characters in Shakespeare's plays, looking for Shakespeare in the attic of his home. Lewis said that for Hamlet to have a relationship with Shakespeare, Shakespeare would literally have to write himself into the story. That is the gospel. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Almost 2,000 years ago, the Bible says that Jesus, in fulfillment to Old Testament prophecies, was born of a virgin. Even as a child, he lived a perfect life. At the age of 30, he began his public ministry. He attracted followers. For three years, he taught, he healed, and he made bold claims, such as saying that he alone was the only way to God. The religious and political leaders did not like these teachings. They invoked a riot against Jesus. They brought about false accusations leading to a trial and to a sentencing of death by public crucifixion. The Bible says that while Jesus hung on the cross, that God placed all of the sin of all of mankind on Jesus. Jesus hung on the cross as our substitute. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. They took Jesus down from the cross and they put him in a tomb. They rolled a large stone at the entrance of the tomb so no one could get in or out. There were Roman soldiers who were posted on guard to keep people from coming to take Jesus' body. But on the third day, according to scripture, he rose again. After being seen by many eyewitnesses and giving instruction to his followers, he ascended back into the heaven, where he now sits at the right hand of God and serves as our advocate before the Father. So what does this have to do with you? The Bible says that we have all sinned and that we all fall short of God's standard of holiness. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no way to get rid of the burden of sin on our own. God calls all men everywhere to believe in Christ, repent of sins, and trust Christ to live a new life. As we look back and believe in what God has done through the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection, as we repent and turn from our sins, as we trust Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we have peace with God and the forgiveness of sins. So let's review. It all begins with God. Because of our sin, we are separated from God. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. 
Jesus died in our place for our sins and rose again on the third day. As we believe in Christ, repent from our sins, and trust Jesus for new life, we have peace with God and forgiveness of sins. That is the gospel.